Father, thank you that you are here in this place. Um, thank you that you're moving among us in quiet ways and in dramatic ways. Um, thank you that as, as our reading earlier reminded us and as Sarah reminded us, um, you've been walking through us all this week, whether we realized it or not. Um, but thank you that this morning as we come together, um, perhaps in different ways, you've opened our eyes again and you've reminded us uh, that the risen Jesus is right by our side. And so, Father, we want to ask as we open up your word, we don't want to just try to understand it by ourselves, uh, but we want to ask you, would you come uh, by your spirit and enliven our reading and give us understanding, uh, not just understanding in our minds, but we want to pray that your word would penetrate to the depths of our hearts and our spirits and make a difference to the people that we are and change our character and change our desires and change our habits and change our relationships and change our families and change our communities because that's what your word does when it enters our hearts. And so we want to pray, come Holy Spirit, um, speak to us by your living word. And we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Um, since we are um, near the end of the series, um, I do want to um, do a little book recommendation for you. If you're enjoying the book of Ecclesiastes and you'd like to have a book on your shelf uh, to kind of help you um, in continuing to explore it, um, th this is the book that I would recommend. Um, it's by a guy called David Gibson who actually grew up in Northern Ireland in Belfast. I knew him a tiny bit when I was younger, um, but now is a minister, I think, in Aberdeen. Uh, the book is called Destiny. Um, I think it's also sold under another title, which is Living Life Backwards. Um, but you'll see maybe the subtitle is Learning to Live by Preparing to Die. Uh, but it's, it's the single best book on Ecclesiastes that I found. It's not a traditional commentary. It doesn't take you through verse by verse. So if you're looking for a commentary, I can recommend one for you um, as well. But that's the book on Ecclesiastes that I would most recommend. And if you do read it, you'll see all the places where I've plundered and stolen uh, things uh, as you go. Um, last week, um, we were talking very much about death. Um, and so you'll be glad to know that this week we're moving on a little bit. Um, and actually, last week we talked about death. This week, we're going to talk about pleasure um, and related things about joy and delight and gladness. Um, the strange thing in the book of Ecclesiastes is that those two themes are actually linked. There's a sense in the book of Ecclesiastes, as we learn to face the reality of death, we learn to live with genuine joy. And that may seem strange or may seem paradoxical, but that's part of the message of this book. And so as we come to chapter nine, um, we are going to return briefly to the theme of death, and then we're going to um, move towards joy. Um, so let's, let's read just, uh, well, let me just put up one verse initially. Um, so at the beginning of chapter nine, um, the teacher returns to the theme of death and in verse two says, all share a common destiny, the righteous and the wicked, the good and the bad, the clean and the unclean, those who offer sacrifices and those who do not. And if you're asking, well, what is that common destiny that everybody shares? Well, it's very much to do with death, that death comes to us all. It's also to do, I think, with the fact that trouble and suffering come to everybody. So in this life, 
we face trouble and suffering. And if you read around in chapter 9, it talks about how there is evil in the world and there is madness in people's hearts and evil times can fall unexpectedly on anyone. Um, and very much a theme of Ecclesiastes is that God's faithful people are not immune to all of that. Trouble and suffering fall on the righteous as well as the wicked, on the good as well as the bad, on the religious as well as the irreligious. Um, it's a common destiny. And then in the end, death comes to everyone. Um, so that's kind of, as you read chapter 9, that's the surrounding context. Trouble comes to everyone. Suffering comes to everyone. Death comes to everyone. Um, but the question then is, how should we live? If that is true, if evil times could come unexpectedly to any of us, if death could come at any moment to any of us, how should we live? And maybe we're thinking then we should live in fear of all of that, um, or we should be really sad and gloomy about all of that, or perhaps we think we should live really cautiously and kind of tiptoe our way through life, trying to avoid as much trouble as possible. As one writer said, to tiptoe tip our way through life with no ambition but to get to death safely. Is that, that, is that a way to live? Um, and here is where we fi find the surprise of Ecclesiastes. In the middle of a chapter talking about trouble coming to everybody and death coming to everybody, we find possibly my favorite part of the book. I want to read it to you uh, from verse 7. The teacher says, Go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart. For God has already approved what you do. Always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. Enjoy life with your wife, whom you love. All the days of this meaningless life that God has given you under the sun, all your meaningless days. For this is your lot in life and in your toilsome labor under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. For in the realm of the dead where you're going, there's neither working nor planning nor knowledge, nor wisdom. So I want to start, um, before we kind of dive into the heart of this, I want to start by maybe clearing up a couple of things which may confuse us or cause a wee bit of distraction, and I think they may be worth trying to clear out of the way a little bit first. Um, the first one is, um, and this is a reminder because we've talked about this already, that meaningless is perhaps not a helpful translation and maybe especially as we read this passage, you notice that um, it, it, it sounds especially strange in this passage if you translate that word as meaningless. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of your meaningless life. It kind of jars on you. Um, I will pause for a second and say I was once given this passage to preach at a wedding. Um, I... I I like to give couples when I'm marrying them the choice of text for their wedding, and usually they give me 1 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind, or uh, 1 John, God is love, or something like that. But you may not be surprised to know, it was Timmy and Emma Robinson being, being a little left field and a little quirky, um, gave me this passage, and I opened it up and was like, enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of your meaningless life, all your meaningless days. Um, but of course, as soon as we start to dig into it a little bit, we discover, as we've said many times, the Hebrew word is hevel. Um, I'm going to ask you, what does the word hevel mean? 
vapor or mist um, or breath. And so whenever you put that in instead of the word meaningless, it makes a lot more sense. It's talking not about the fact that life is meaningless, but about the fact that life is fleeting. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love all the days of this fleeting life because it's gone like a breath. So enjoy it while it's here. It makes all kinds of sense. So that's one thing. Like the word meaningless is really distracting. Um, put the word hevel in, put the word vapor in, um, and it makes a lot more sense. Um, second thing that I think is worth clarifying, and we, we've mentioned this in passing before, is that the teacher who we're listening to in Ecclesiastes doesn't yet have a clear view of life after death. And this reflects the fact that although the teacher is really wise, and probably wiser than any of us, that the teacher stands in a particular place on the timeline of salvation history, on the timeline of biblical history. Um, and this is often true of the Old Testament as a whole, that there are, there are glimpses of the hope of life after death. There are little moments in the Old Testament when the hope of life after death becomes really clear. And you can maybe think about what some of those are. And even in Ecclesiastes, we saw that moment where the teacher says, God has put eternity in our hearts. And so you get these little glimpses. But the, the full reality of life after death and the hope of glory, and especially the hope of resurrection, is not yet clear to the teacher or to, to others who are at that point in salvation history. It's only in the light of Jesus that that hope becomes clear. And so... I think we can say from where we stand on this side of Jesus, we can see some things which the teacher couldn't yet see. And so whenever I was reading that passage, um, the teacher says, in the realm of the dead where you're going, there is neither working nor planning nor knowledge nor wisdom. And I think we should say in the light of Jesus, we know more. Um, in the realm where we are going, in the realm of resurrection, in the realm of new creation, there will be working. And you can read the book of Revelation to see we will serve our God night and day and there will be all kinds of fruitful work to do in the new creation. And we also know that there will be knowledge and wisdom. And in fact, we will have direct and personal and face-to-face -face knowledge like we don't have now. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, now we know in part, then we will know fully even as we are fully known. There's a knowledge and a, a personal, direct, face-to-face um, -face knowledge that is coming beyond anything that we can currently imagine. So I think those are two things just worth clarifying. Uh, we see more from this side of Jesus than the teacher uh, was able to see uh, about those things after death. So I hope that maybe clears, clears up a couple of things that might distract us. Uh, but now I would love us to hear the heart of this beautiful passage. Um, and maybe sometimes people say the Bible, uh, sometimes people say, you know, the Bible, it's full of rules, it's full of uh, commandments. Um, I want to give you a beautiful rule <laughs> um, for this week uh, to take into the week with you. This is one of the rules, one of the commands in the Bible is enjoy life. <laughs> enjoy life. Um, I wonder, does it come as a surprise to you to find that in the Bible. Um, I want to suggest this morning, if it does surprise you, 
then we have badly misunderstood the character of God. If that comes as a surprise, that God would say to us as his people, enjoy life. Um, And perhaps it gets even more surprising because not only are we to enjoy life, but we are to enjoy life. And this, this resonates with what Wallace was talking about earlier on. We are to enjoy life in a body, in a physical world, not just spiritual pleasures or intellectual pleasures of the mind, but embodied pleasures. And so the teacher spells out, I think, four main things that we are to enjoy, which are these. Let's make sure we we pay attention to them. We are to enjoy food and drink. Eat your food with gladness. Drink your wine with a joyful heart. Second, we are to enjoy clothing and beauty. Always be clothed in white. Always anoint your head with oil. Those are very much um, things to do with celebration and joy. The wearing of white clothes, the putting of oil on the head. Um, Clothing and beauty are to be enjoyed. Thirdly, we are to enjoy marriage. Enjoy life with your wife whom you love. Um, And I do want to say in the context of all these physical pleasures that are being talked about in this passage, I think that undoubtedly includes enjoying sexual intimacy as well as the friendship and companionship of marriage. Um, Marriage is a gift uh, to be enjoyed. Um, Fourthly, we're to enjoy work. Um, Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with all your might. And if you've been reading in Ecclesiastes, you'll know that this theme comes up a lot. We're told many times in the book to find satisfaction or find joy or find delight in the work that we do. Um, Not to be striving for success, but to be enjoying the work that comes to hand and find joy um, in it. Um, I wonder what you think about that list uh, of things to enjoy. Um, I do want to say, by the way, I don't think that's an exhaustive list. Um, Those are just some of the good gifts of life under the sun. Um, Later on in the book of Ecclesiastes, the teacher um, praises the sweetness of light of sunlight. Um, In chapter 11, there's a a verse that says, light is sweet and it pleases the eyes to see it. Um, And I was reading that in the Hebrew, um, that that verse is 17 syllables, which some of you will know is uh, what the the syllables in a Japanese haiku, which is a form of uh, beautiful kind of short poetry. So what we have there is a beautiful little poem uh, in praise of sunlight as a gift. Um, I wonder what you could write a haiku about that you enjoy. Um, I think one of, the, one of the most fun things that we can do with this passage, because it's not exhaustive, is make your own list. Um, what are the things that you enjoy about life in this world? What are, what are the good gifts that God has given that bring you pleasure? And if you want to write a 17-syllable haiku in praise of riding your bike or climbing a mountain or your favorite food or whatever it is, um, The book of Ecclesiastes celebrates these things. Um, Maybe you could make your own list this week. Um, But I wonder, did you notice this amazing phrase? God has already approved what you do. I think we know immediately that doesn't mean God approves of everything that we do. Um, But in this context, it means God approves of you enjoying these things. Um, To put it another way, 
God finds enjoyment in your enjoyment. God finds pleasure in your pleasure. God finds delight in your delight. And again, I want to say, if we find that surprising, we have badly misunderstood the character of God. I wonder, is that how you think of God? That as you enjoy the simple good things that God has given us in this life, God finds delight in watching you enjoy it. Um, I've been, I guess I've been thinking a little bit this week about why do we maybe sometimes find that surprising? Or even for some of us, why might this even make us a little bit nervous? So we're in church and we're talking about bodily pleasure or physical pleasure. Um, and I think there are probably two main reasons why it might make us a little bit nervous. Um, and I want to mention them. One of them is we know that physical pleasures can lead to trouble, right? We know that enjoying food can lead to gluttony, that enjoying wine can lead to drunkenness and addiction and other kinds of trouble, that enjoying clothing and beauty can lead to vanity, um, that enjoying sex can lead us to all kinds of trouble, uh, that enjoying work can lead people to drivenness and workaholism and overambition and all kinds of stuff. And so we know that physical pleasures can get us into trouble. Um, by the way, I think we tend to worry about some of those things that I've just mentioned more than others. We're a bit selective sometimes. Um, but we've all seen people make a mess of their lives by going down that road. And maybe we've experienced some of that ourselves, the trouble you can get into uh, through these pleasures. And so perhaps there's an instinct in us that says, I want to stay well away from the danger. And so physical pleasure is suspects. Physical pleasure is dangerous. I think that's one reason. Um, a second reason why we might be a wee bit nervous is that the Bible warns us. We know that the Bible warns us about the pleasures of the flesh. Um, and maybe if I put you on the spot, we might struggle to remember where in the Bible uh, that's talked about. Well, we're pretty sure we've heard people warn us about that and quote the Bible. Um, well, let me give you one. Um, 1 John chapter 2 uh, from verse 15 says, do not love the world or anything in the world for everything in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life comes not from the father, but from the, wor the world. And so we have those warnings posted. And so we are nervous. We are not sure what to make of the pleasures that exist um, in this world. So maybe I want to suggest we have understandable reasons to be nervous. And as a result, some of us end up developing a theology that says bodies are bad or at least a little bit dangerous or suspect and physical pleasure is bad or at least a little bit suspect. Um, perhaps we end up holding our sign saying, careful now uh, about any kind of pleasure because we're nervous about where it might lead. And we can end up, if we're not careful, with a form of religion which is anti-body, anti-physicality, um, and which ends up actually being gloomy and serious and heavy and joyless, and actually ends up being much more like the religion of the Pharisees than the way of Jesus. Um, and I don't know if you, I'm, I'm sure many of you would agree with me, we have had plenty of that on this island, both North and South, both Protestant and Catholic, We've had plenty of that kind of gloomy religion. Um, 
I've got an excuse here um, as I think about these things. I want to re read to you from my favourite novel in the world, which I haven't read from for ages, um, which I'm not recommending because other people don't always love it as much as I do. Um, but I want to read you just a little bit. Um, Jaber Crow um, tells the story of a barber in a small town in Kentucky um, who definitely believes in God but finds church difficult. Um, he goes to church and he hear, he says that in their little town in Kentucky, they got lots of young preachers who came and preached very serious sermons, warning people about uh, the dangers of the flesh and the pleasures of the flesh um, and so on. Um, and I want to read you just a little bit of his puzzlement as he tried to understand what all of this meant. Jaber Crow says, these preachers seem to have a very high opinion of God and a very low opinion of his works although they would tell you that this world had been made by God himself. What they didn't seem to see was that it is beautiful and that some of the greatest beauties are the briefest. It's very Ecclesiastes. Um, and he goes on to say this. He said, um, this religion that scorned the beauty and goodness of this world was a puzzle to me. To begin with, I didn't think anybody believed it. I still don't think so. Those world-condemning sermons were preached to people who on Sunday mornings would be wearing their prettiest clothes. Even the old widows in their dark dresses would be pleasing to look at. By dressing up on the one day when most of them had leisure to do it, they signified their wish to present themselves to one another and to heaven, looking their best. The people who heard those sermons loved good crops and good gardens and good livestock and work animals and dogs. They loved flowers and the shade of trees and laughter and music. And some of them could make you a fair speech on the pleasures of a good drink of water or a patch of wild raspberries. While the wickedness of the flesh was preached from the pulpit, the young husbands and wives and the courting couples sat thigh to thigh, full of yearning and joy. The old people thought of the beauty of the children. And when church was over, they would go home to heavenly dinners of fried chicken and cream new potatoes and cream new peas and hot biscuits and butter and cherry pie and sweet milk and buttermilk. And the preacher and his family would always be invited to eat with somebody and they would always go. And the preacher, having just forsworn on behalf of everybody the joys of the flesh, would eat with unconsecrated relish. Um, um, what do we make of all that? We, we get a bit confused about this. We can understand how we ended up suspicious about pleasures of the body. But a religion that is suspicious of embodied pleasure uh, as a whole is not healthy and is not good theology. And it's not what the Bible as a whole teaches. Um, and I want to just briefly um, sort of make the case for why that is before uh, we reach our kind of final uh, couple of encouragements. Um, why, why can we say the Bible as a whole does not teach that bodies are bad or that physical pleasure is bad? Um, I want to give you three words. Um, creation. The first one is creation. The Bible says God made a physical world and declared it to be good. Um, and then he made us as embodied creatures and declared that part of the creation to be very good. Um, and so Genesis is telling us it is a good thing to be an embodied creature in a physical world. Whatever has gone wrong later because of sin, it is a good thing to be an embodied creature in a physical world. 
Um, and as part of that good creation, physical pleasure is God's idea. Um, I don't know if you've ever thought about the fact that God could have made eating a functional mechanical necessity, like filling up your car with petrol, that you get empty and you fill up and there'd be no pleasure in it. But instead, God made us with taste buds and able to appreciate um, all kinds of amazing flavors. God could have done the same with procreation. So we produce children without any delight or any pleasure. Um, he could have created a world without color and beauty, but he filled it with unnecessary beauty to delight the eye. And he made us to find joy in fulfilling and fruitful work. Um, creation tells us it is good to be a creature with a body in a physical world and that pleasure is God's idea. The second word is incarnation. In the person of Jesus of Nazareth, God took on human flesh. He became an embodied human creature while still being fully God. Um, and the New Testament tells us he came eating and drinking. wonder if you ever noticed how often in the Gospels we find Jesus sharing a meal with people. Have you ever noticed? Um, it's almost the most common picture of Jesus in the Gospels. One writer says Jesus literally eats his way through the Gospels. Um, eating in the home of notorious sinners, eating in the home of Pharisees, eating with his disciples, feeding people with bread and fish, providing really good wine at a wedding. Um, and of course, all of that eating and drinking bothered the serious religious people of his day. And they called him a glutton and a drunkard and a friend of sinners. Um, we cannot, after God has become flesh, we cannot ever again say it is not a good thing to be a human creature. Whatever has gone wrong because of sin, being a human being, including uh, these strange bodies that we have, is a good thing. It has been blessed by God. Um, the third word is resurrection. Um, we've talked about this often. The biblical picture of our future hope is not of floating around as disembodied souls in a spiritual heaven, but of resurrection and new creation and living in renewed bodies on a renewed earth. And yes, again, eating together. <laughs> Because the picture that we're given of that future hope, Isaiah says, God himself will prepare a feast for all people, the best of meats and the finest of wines. That's Isaiah 25. Um, and so creation, incarnation, resurrection, this is basic biblical theology. It says it is a good thing to be a creature with a body living in a physical world. It's God's idea um, and a gift from God. Um, what is the danger and there is danger. I don't want to downplay that. It's not the theme of today's sermon. Um, the danger is um, when we pursue physical pleasure as our main goal, then any of these things that we're talking about can become an idol, which will break our heart, which will turn to ashes in our mouth. Um, these things can become a god, and then they become a demon, and they can cause all kinds of harm in our lives. They can lead us to disaster. But the solution is not to avoid physical pleasure or to be really nervous about physical pleasure. The, the solution is to ask God to renew and reorder our desires so that we give our hearts allegiance only to our creator. So he is our first love and our central desire and our deepest gladness and delight is found in him. And then 
to receive all these other things as gifts from his hand, to be enjoyed according to his good guidance, and that's really important. But also the thing I want to say this morning is they are to be really and genuinely enjoyed. And I think not timidly and cautiously enjoyed, but with a full heart and a glad heart and a thankful heart, they are to be enjoyed. Um, and so for the last couple of minutes, um, I want to think about this because this blows my mind, maybe as a place to go to finish. Um, there's a, a phrase that is maybe a little bit of a Christian cliche that says, this world is not my home. Uh, when I was younger, I used to listen to Larry Norman and he used to sing, um, don't ask me, I'm only visiting this planet. Um, and he used to sing, this world is not my home, I'm just passing through. Um, but I've often over the years puzzled and wondered a little bit about that phrase. I think it's one of those cliches that is partly true, but can also be a little bit misleading. There is an important sense in which this world is our home because God literally created this world as a place for us to live. God designed this world as a dwelling place, as a habitation for human beings to live and he filled it with good and delightful things to be enjoyed. Of course, you and I know this world has been horribly disfigured by sin and as Ecclesiastes says, it is full of evil and madness and sorrow and death. And so because of that, we long for a world made whole. We feel not at home in this world. We, we, we wish for, for it all to be made new. We long for a world without sorrow or pain or sin or death. And so the reality of sorrow and sickness and pain and death make us homesick for the new creation that is coming. But this is a bit that really kind of blows my mind. It's not only sorrow and death that make us homesick. Um, pleasure and joy can also make us homesick. Um, I want to I make that case to you for a moment. Um, did you notice in the verses we read in Ecclesiastes that the verses are full of wedding imagery? Um, where do you get good food and good wine and white clothes and oil on the hair and a husband and a wife and joy? <laughs> right? It's a picture of life, but it's also a picture of a wedding. And when the Bible speaks of the hope of the world to come, it often uses the image of a wedding banquet. You can read Revelation 19 later to see that. And so this is something that I find just really powerful, that the good things that we enjoy now, food, drink, clothing, beauty, friendship, companionship, marriage, work, whatever it is, they are a foretaste and an appetizer of the greater joy and delight to come. And so we eat and drink now together in anticipation of our feasting together then. At the very end of the, the Narnia stories, which I love, um, the children and the animals um, move from the old Narnia to the new Narnia. And as they look around in the new Narnia, um, they are puzzled because they find that, it is, that everything is new, but everything is also familiar. It's in some ways not like anywhere they've ever been before, but in some ways it keeps reminding them of the world they used to know. 
and yet it is more real and more beautiful uh, than anything they've ever seen. And C.S. Lewis writes this, it was the unicorn, there's unicorns, go with it, they're there. It was the unicorn who summed up what everyone was feeling. He stamped his right forehoof on the ground and he neighed and then he cried, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I've been looking for all my life, though I never knew it until now. The reason why we love the old Narnia is that it sometimes looked a little like this. And then, of course, he gives his famous cry, come further up, come further in, come and explore the delights that, that God has for you. We love the old Narnia because it sometimes looked a little like this. Um, and so David Gibson, um, in his book, uh, maybe, maybe as I've been talking this morning, you've been wondering, what is the difference between what Ecclesiastes is saying and the hedonist who says, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die? Um, and I think there is a very big difference. And David Gibson sums it up. He says, those without Christ often abandon themselves to eating and drinking because sometimes it looks as if that's all there is to do before we die. But those who love Christ cherish eating and drinking and all these other things because it looks a little like what we will do forever after we die. It looks a little like the home that we are waiting for. Um, and so with all of that in mind, um, I love that I get to say this at the end. Um, it's really important that you put this sermon into practice, okay, this week. So what is, what is your homework this week? Go and enjoy life. Um, enjoy all of good's gifts, God's good gifts with a glad heart. Enjoy being an embodied creature in a physical world. Make your own list of things that you're grateful for and that delight you. Write a small poem in praise of whatever it is you love. Make a speech uh, about whatever it is that you love. Um, and see if in a little moment of quiet you can sense that God delights in your delight. God has already approved what you do. Um, enjoy these things uh, with a full heart. Um, let's pray, and then we're going to sing to finish. Um, let, me, let me remind you, as always, um, if you'd like someone to pray with you this morning for anything going on in your life, anything going on in your heart, uh, there'll be a couple of people who would love to pray with you just up to my left, your right, at the front, front of the room. Let's pray. Father, I want to pray. I want to pray that you would forgive us when we are people who have a high view of you and a low view of your works. When we um, despise the good things that you have created or are so nervous and cautious about them that we, we don't delight in them and give thanks to you for them. Father, thank you that you understand our weakness and you know why sometimes we are nervous and cautious. Father, we do want to pray that you would keep us from the idolatry uh, around created things that would lead us to disaster. Father, help us not to pursue any of the pleasures of the body as the main goal of our lives, as something that we give our hearts to. 
Father, we want you to have the central place as the delight of our hearts, as our first love. But Father, would you then help us and teach us how to enjoy the good things that you've given us with glad hearts. And Father, I want to pray that this week we might have our eyes open and be looking around and just learning to be grateful for every good gift that you have given us and every blessing you pour out and help us to turn it back to praise. Help us to enjoy you as we enjoy your gifts. And I pray that we would also have those moments when we sense your pleasure, your delight in our delight. And we pray in the name of Jesus, the giver of all joy. Amen.